Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. This week, we take a look at the world of seed investing. I'm not talking about farming, although in some ways I am. I'm talking about the way good early stage ideas attract seed capital to get their ventures off the ground. And while I don't have the data to support it, I suspect that the number one reason why most great businesses or product ideas never see the light of day is for one reason and one reason only, money. Everyone loves a unicorn, not the mystical creatures that inhabit Enchanted Woods variety, but rather the privately held startups that achieve a $1 billion valuation. But long before a startup has its first conversation with a venture capital firm or an investment bank, it has to find someone willing to put down some money and assume some big risk. After calling in favors from friends and family and tapping out the credit card, there's a funding gap. To fill it, entrepreneurs oftentimes turn to angel investors. They come in all shapes and sizes. Some are successful entrepreneurs themselves, happy to spread their newfound wealth to help others like them. Others organize themselves into groups with a common set of investment goals or interests. In recent years, online platforms have emerged, letting almost anyone get involved. Like buying a hundred lottery tickets, just one might get lucky. Increasingly, angel investors are starting to specialize. Assemble together a team of consumer bankers, payment experts, and techno geeks, and you can, for example, specialize in fintech. Think about how technology can be applied to solve climate change, and you become a sustainability investor. That's exactly what my guest this week has done. Mark Inkster is a technologist at heart. He spent decades in the region holding strategic roles at Yahoo, eBay, Microsoft, and a handful of startups. Earlier this year, he co-founded Asia Sustainability Angels, and together with a handful of others, he's formed a circle to seed early-stage companies bent on solving some of the biggest sustainability problems of our day. We'll get to my conversation with Mark, but first, a word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now here's my conversation with Mark. Mark Inkster. So nice to see you in person. We are recording live. It's nice to be back face to face. We've been in a little bit of a shutdown here in Singapore, but uh, welcome to 1880, small club on the Robertson Key area. And uh, we're going to talk today about angel investing. How did you get into the space of angel investing? What was your story? I've been involved in tech businesses pretty much all my career. So uh, starting in the late 80s in Silicon Valley, and a number of my friends have been doing this since the 80s and 90s. Um, and so I've seen it. I finally got to a place in my career where I decided it's time for me to invest some angel investing in just regular startups, but especially in sustainability. So I looked at both. Southeast Asia is really going through a super interesting time over the past five, six, seven years where the venture ecosystem here 10 years ago was very, very small. And even five years ago was still quite small. Um, and now the, the venture ecosystem really driven by the adoption, mass adoption of smartphones and the internet connectivity that went around that you know, seven or so years ago. Um, that has led to 
a number of, of VC firms that started at doing very, very early stage investing and then have grown with the market. Hmm. And as they've grown, they've uh, left room at the bottom. So there's, there's a very real opportunity in Southeast Asia now for individuals to come in and groups to come in and do angel investing. So I think you're helping put, it, put this in perspective. So you're saying that it takes a relatively mature or a maturing market in order for active angel investing to be a possibility? What I think the history of Silicon Valley showed, and it plays out here now, and it's, it's played out in different markets across Asia, it's now coming to Southeast Asia, is that the earliest VC goes in at pretty early stages. And as those funds evolve, they have the opportunity to raise larger funds, uh, the ecosystem will accept larger investments, and they grow with the ecosystem. Um, so you see that the people who had maybe a a $10 million fund six or seven years ago, they might have a 30 or 50 or $100 million fund now. Mm. Uh, and if you have a $100 million fund and you want to make 15, 20 investments, you're having to make five, $10 million investments uh, or you know, somewhere in that range, which um, is not the super early stage bet size. Mm. So, so um, as they've grown, that really, that really creates the opportunity for, for Angel. You know, Mark, it was interesting. For the last decade, China was hot. So much money, particularly in tech, was pouring into China. Um, 80% of the Asia-Pacific focus was there. Uh, and then along comes COVID and some of the U.S. trade tensions and uh, other geopolitical issues, which uh, I think put some investors off China. Right before COVID hit, you saw a shift of funds down to Southeast Asia. And then, of course, there was a bit of a drying up for obvious reasons when COVID did strike. Um, is it your impression or do you have a feeling that uh, in, in the spectrum of what's available in, in Asia, that Southeast Asia is the new hot spot for investing for VCs or angels? I do think it is. So um, when I was in Silicon Valley during the dot-com boom years, 99, 2000, the bus came, <clears throat> I was following a car up Highway 101, and it had a bumper sticker that said, please, God, give me one more bubble. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, I've spent my career, I left the valley in 2003, uh, went to China, I was early in e-commerce with eBay in China, um, came down here to Southeast Asia in 2009, but spent a lot of time focused on India. And what I saw, and, and even when I was in the valley, I was investing and building companies around the world. So you had the American S-curve of internet adoption that came pretty early, and then Japan and Western Europe, and then you had Korea, then you had China. And a lot of what we saw in China was that that S-curve went on a lot longer because the country's so big, so that's been a huge ramp up in investment there. Mm. But there was another internet adoption curve in India. So the Indian ecosystem has been super hot for the last 10 years in, in VC. Mm. And it took smartphones to make that uh, infrastructure be in place here in Southeast Asia for this market to take off. But now it's firmly in place. The entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem in, in Singapore has really picked up in the decade or in the past decade. Um, and, and that's what's created the opportunity. So I think geopolitical attentions aside, this just has the fundamentals going for it. And um, there aren't that many, uh, the, frankly, big venture-backed companies here yet. We're seeing, we saw uh, C go public a while ago. We're seeing now Grab and GoTo. So we're uh, really uh, the beginning of some big exits here. Mm. And I think that's gonna continue to drive more interest and continue to build the whole inf infrastructure system. Mark, what's required to be an angel investor? 
I think the a lot of different people come in and do angel investing and bring a lot of different things to the table. Most angel investors, um, uh, most companies will only accept uh, uh, funds from accredited investors on their cap table. So there's there are certain rules about uh, uh, financial assets the investors have to have. Uh, but within accredited investors, I'd say you need to be the old adage about you know invest for the long term and invest in what you know i think plays out in angel investing as well so uh, you have to have some degree of knowledge of what you think a good opportunity is going to be and um, and then the ability to uh, stomach some risk The, the the old the, the the sort of classic wisdom in a VC portfolio is you need <coughs> at least ten companies in your portfolio and one of them will be successful some of them will will fail and there's some the rest are kind of in the middle the rule of thumb in angel is is more like twenty okay. so um, you you basically say hmm if only one in twenty comes that means that nineteen out of the twenty mm. aren't going to be all that successful and it takes um, uh, uh, You, you need to have an awareness and an ability to stomach that and say, all right, these aren't going to work this one well and have a long time horizon. And, and of course, there's options where you can simply raise your hand, declare to the market, you know, I'm interested in putting a little bit of money, my personal money, into interesting opportunities. People know you by reputation. They see you as somebody who could be a strategic a partner, somebody who brings certain insight or some capabilities or network. Um, these are all reasons why somebody might take your money as well, right? It goes both ways in many ways. Um, so, so when you look at um, th that option versus uh, circles, angel circles, groups of people that get together, what are you seeing in that space? Is there a advantage in joining together with a group of 20 or 30 others, pooling your resources and your collective knowledge in order to see a, a greater degree or a greater number of deals? I've seen it work both ways. I've seen people be successful on their own, and I've seen people be successful in groups. Mm -hmm. In order to do it on your own, you basically have to think of yourself as a one-person venture capitalist mm -hmm. and dedicate yourself to it as if you're working in a VC firm. Mm -hmm. And um, around the world, there are ways that you can actually go find a deal and syndicate that deal. Mm -hmm. So AngelList is one of those, and there are some here in Southeast Asia as well. Uh, so you can actually be a fundless venture capitalist full-time if you have the skill set and track record to do that. And I know people have done that and they've been very successful doing that. On the, I personally have chosen to go down the route of joining and now creating um, angel, angel groups. I find that the uh, breadth that you can get from having a hundred different people all bringing good businesses to the table is really helpful. Mm -hmm. And the value that you can add to the investee company when you have 100 people with very different backgrounds is also great. So uh, so as an example, I'm, I'm part of three groups. I started one here and I'm part of two others. And across all of these, um, the, the diversity of people is pretty high. Mm. And people bring different backgrounds, different networks, different areas of expertise. Um, I, I co-founded a group here called Asia Sustainability Angels, so we're very sustainability focused. And we have people from, uh, we have 
people, some venture capitalists, some people from the banking world, some people from the nonprofit world, some people from tech background, and everybody brings a little different perspective to the table that really helps us in our thinking. How formal are these gatherings, or is it just as and when a deal opportunity comes through, you get together and discuss it, or is it like a monthly club, a dinner club, or a wine club? Let's get together, talk about what we're seeing, um, make a few calls, you know, and then prioritize what we think would be the right way to go. Basically, two models that I've seen. Yeah. The most common is a monthly meeting, okay. and you'd have two or three companies present, a little bit Shark Tank style, but generally more friendly than that. And um, the companies might get 10 minutes to present and then five minutes for Q&A, mm -hmm. and then you look at the next one, the next one, and uh, at the last 10, 15 minutes, people circle back and say, are we interested? Mm -hmm. And if people are interested at the end of that, then the group of interesting, interested people get together and, um, and, and go do the due diligence and at the end of the day can make the investment. So it's usually done informally as a group that you heard about or saw in the, in the presentation, whether that's over a meal or over a conference call or whatever it is. Okay, and, and when, when uh, early stage uh, companies come in, startups come in and pitch, how do you identify and which ones do you bring to the table most groups will have a set of screening criteria and will filter a lot of deals before they get to the small subset that they put together. So, you know, maybe they see 30, 40, 50 companies to pick three mm -hmm. that go to the investors, and maybe of those three, one or zero will actually get invested in at any given monthly meeting. So it's, um, it's, it's, there's a, a funnel of consideration just to, uh, just to find the companies. In the super early days, the founder plays a very big role in the success of the company. Mm. And uh, the financials are very, very uncertain. Mm. So you need to look at the overall market, look at the strength of the founder, um, form some belief about the quality of, uh, of the solution compared to your belief about what the customer need is. So those are the kind of criteria that go into the screening at the earliest stage. Mm. and uh, And often there's sort of a screening committee which does a lot of work and um, brings these deals to to the table and that's another advantage of being part of an angel group is you've got a group of people who, if you don't have a lot of time who can spend more of their time working on it mm. what what do you find as the uh, in this part of the world at least the threshold of an investment are we talking about 10 20 30,000 is there typically a cutoff um, do you all set a certain you know threshold that you then communicate to prospective investee companies how does it work I'm seeing that angel groups often put in somewhere between 50 and $200,000 into investments as a group and then it depends on the size of the group often uh, 10k to 50k per investment a number of angel groups create sidecar funds. Mm. And so uh, as long as some subset of the group wants to invest in that company, then the sidecar fund will invest in that company as well. Mm. And those tend to be relatively small and uh, extremely diversified for mm. people who say, gee, I'm not sure, I just want to have a broad portfolio. Um, but in, in general, people like different things. Mm. So, oh, oh I, that, that founder, I really resonated with me. I, I can see how they're going to win. And someone else says, yeah, that, that founder is not compelling to me. Mm. Uh, or that idea is not compelling or it doesn't tick this box or that box in, in my own perspective. So generally, um, uh, people are very open that some like some investments and some like other investments. 
The, uh, the one thing, uh, though, is that increasingly I've seen angel groups put some membership fee in place mm. and ask people to make at least one investment a year because they want to make sure that, that uh, we're not wasting the entrepreneur's time and, and putting a little skin in the game and making people say, are you serious um, and really going to invest helps make sure the entrepreneur has a good experience as well as the investor having a good experience. Mm. What made you think that sustainability versus tech was an interesting idea and its time was now? Yeah, I had the, the good luck to join Yahoo back in the 90s and then be at eBay, Microsoft, and ride these S-curves around the world and have that full experience, which has been a lot of fun. So I've, um, I've seen the power of what disruptive companies can do and scalable companies can do around the world and, uh, and the super interesting businesses they can create and the impact that they have on our working conditions, our day-to-day -day work life, and on the economy as a whole. It's very, very clear and become, it's, it's been clear for a very long time that the world needs to do more in the world of sustainability. So I've been interested in it my whole life. 25 years ago in the Bay Area was part of a group of people that was working on sustainability even back then. But I didn't marry these worlds of my sort of tech early stage company building background and my sustainability interest until the last few years. Mm. I, um, what I'm seeing broadly is that the uh, progress that we're making in so many areas, whether that's solar power panels uh, coming down in price so much that it's cheaper now to put in renewable energy systems than coal or, 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 or fossil fuel fired power plants, the excitement around electric vehicles and all the charging infrastructure. There's so much that's happening right now with people uh, applying all the lessons that have been learned from tech entrepreneurship to solving super important world problems, mm. um, the, the momentum has, has grown. It's grown early in Europe. Really, there's, there's long been a sustainability investment world and sustainability focus in Europe, less so in America, but in the last 10, 15 years, increasing number of people going, doing it in America. It's been slow in Asia, and especially slow in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. um, so part of it in any, whenever you're going to invest in any area, getting the timing right is important. And now I think there's enough quality entrepreneurs and enough interesting companies growing here uh, and enough of an infrastructure overall that, that it seems to work. Yeah, you raised something earlier, which is uh, many of the renewable energy or sustainable ventures are industrial scale, re requiring lots of capital, uh, lots of investment. Private equity is very active in the space for that very reason. Um, where is the room for angels? Uh, one of my friends, an entrepreneur in the Valley, has started three or four different companies and is very proud with uh, what she has done starting those companies and said, really, my legacy is having created these things that live on, mm. but what I was good at is the starting of them. Mm. And I'd say that's really the place where angels play. I heard of one deal recently about uh, fish farming in Thailand, for instance, where um, somebody came up with this idea that they noticed that fish slowed down when they'd been overeating and sped up when they were hungry. So instead of, instead of giving fish three squares a day, you simply only feed them when they were that there was a detection that they were moving faster, and that way you reduce the amount of feed, you improve the health of the fish, um, you improve the overall margin of the business, and it was a, simply a device 
device that sat in the pond that basically triggered and signaled when the fish picked up their activity. That seems like a really small, early stage, interesting opportunity where it's a technology applied to an agribusiness in order to get a better result. Is that the kind of deal that you would see? Broadly speaking, yes, that's exactly the kind of deal that we do. And yes, that's one example of a million different uh, ideas, or maybe not a million, but, but you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of good companies and interesting companies that are out there. Mm. The um, way I've been looking at it is we're going through, an, there are some big levers to pull on the sustainability side. One of those is around energy. One of those is around food, and one of those is around what I'll call industrial ecology. So those three big areas all have uh, big impacts on, on, on our climate, on, our, uh, on, on the natural environment around us. So those are areas where we're focusing, where my Asia Sustainability Angels Group is focusing. And the, um, um, each of those is big. And we talked earlier about the, uh, some of the things that you can get by being part of a bigger group. If you have enough people, you can have somebody who's an expertise in electricity generating, someone who has some expertise in electric vehicles, somebody who has some expertise in transmission, uh, and that's just on the energy side. And then on the food side, you might have somebody who understands fish farming, somebody who understands um, vertical farming, somebody who understands the application of... Uh, of technology to seeds. There's so many different things that are going on in, in each of those areas. So um, uh, you're having the breadth of perspective to see all of those things is, uh, is, is easier in a broad group. In terms of, uh, yeah, some of the specific things that I've been seeing lately, um, on the energy side, we've seen a um, uh, energy m micro there's a lot of work going on with microgrids how do you get electric power out into uh, very very small villages mm -hmm. and you know people now are taking containers of gasoline on the back of their motorbike and bringing it up to these villages so they're using a lot of power to get the power to these places and polluting the whole way through um, so if they can have a local solar power and a battery storage system and an electric motorcycle it's much more efficient all the way through. Um, and then, but do you really need one on every small uh, house in the village or can you only have two or three and then use those to power the whole village with some very low cost grid infrastructure? Mm -hmm. So I saw a company around that that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, seeing a lot in the food space. And actually, I'll, I'll take a little issue with what you said about the developing um, Economies, yes, uh, Southeast Asia has a lot of, uh, of emerging economies and emerging markets, but it also has massive cities and and and, and big, big cities that have all the problems that new Asian megacities have mm -hmm. and all the benefits they have, and you have sophisticated economies as well, often in those cities and places here like Singapore. Mm -hmm. So there's um, here in Singapore, the government has done quite a lot to promote food technology. Yeah. And here where we're sitting in 1880 was one of the places that uh, first commercially served lab-grown chicken meat. Mm. And 
that is very conscious, um, a conscious effort by the government to create a, a regulatory infrastructure, a scientific development infrastructure, manufacturing infrastructure, and financial infrastructure to enable those kinds of innovation to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'd say it's a, that's an example of, of, of a sophisticated market in Southeast Asia. So it's a really broad range from super high-tech biochemistry to rural electrification to shrimp farming um, and everything in between. As you're reviewing a company, is the primary focus on um, identifying unique IP, intellectual property, or is it in identifying a business model that has potential um, yet doesn't have the capital sufficient to scale and demonstrate its effect? So for me, the most important thing to start with is, is this entrepreneur, is this company solving a really important user problem, a really important customer problem. So if there's um, something that, that people have been trying to solve for a long time, but they just haven't, and technology gives a way of solving it that is way better than what you had before, mm -hmm. then that's sort of checkbox number one, regardless of the IP. And then the second is, how big is this opportunity? Is it going to scale? Is this, uh, is this a big problem financially as well as just for this particular customer? There are a lot of customers with this problem. Mm -hmm. And then do you believe in the team? So if you have, I look at all those things before I look at the quality of the IP for most businesses. Now, then once you get past those hurdles, then that's where I think looking at, uh, at, at how you would defend your position in that space is, um, uh, that, that's where that kicks in. A lot of entrepreneurs I've found are very shy about uh, sharing their ideas and they think they've got the great idea and it's going to, um, and that it's really all about the idea. And the ideas are important, but time and again, you've seen people come in with old ideas. I mean, look at, look at Facebook. Facebook was the third generation of social networking and is, is huge. So an awful lot comes down to the quality of execution of the team. And um, there are people doing patent, uh, you know, having these massive files of, uh, of, of patents so that they can fight each other, especially in, in certain industries. And at the early stage, uh, it's, it's, I think you're not going to win that game. If a big player wants to sue you for patent infringement and has a very big legal budget and you've got a small budget, I don't think you're going to win that game. Mm. Really good entrepreneurs will acknowledge the weaknesses of their model and the weaknesses of of their teams, yeah. and they will um, they they won't dwell on them. Right? They'll they'll focus most of the conversation on the positive opportunity. But when pressed, they'll acknowledge the 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 negatives, and that reassures the investor that yes, this is uh, somebody who understands the strengths and weaknesses of the world that they're operating in. That was my conversation with Mark Inkster, tech industry veteran and co-founder of the Asia Sustainability Angels. As a rule of thumb, it's a good thing when investor communities spring up around a new trend. That was the case with e-commerce, fintech, and now, apparently, sustainability. The pressure for investors to comply with new practices that take into consideration the environmental, social, and governance considerations of investing companies means that more businesses will spring up to support and enable this transformation. Earlier this year, MSCI, the New York-based investment research firm, released its findings that showed a 79% surge in ESG investing across Asia-Pacific in response to the COVID-19 crisis. Apparently, it's not a one-off. 
The MSCI research also shows that 57% of Asian investors expect to completely or to a large extent incorporate ESG investment criteria in their decision-making processes. That's a big deal. It suggests that the money coming from global pension or sovereign funds are influencing private capital investment behavior. Most agree that without that pressure from the top, profit-at-all-cost traditions would prevail. A perfect storm of climate change, corporate greed, and COVID-19 have conspired to challenge that status quo. In the world of stakeholder capitalism, everyone has something to gain from ESG-style investing. It gives companies the chance to meet consumer expectations. It also helps governments meet their carbon reduction commitments as per the Paris Agreement. The trickle-down benefits come into play as well, like reducing climate risk in developing countries, preserving the rainforests, and reducing single-use plastics. Like I said, everyone has something to gain. As Mark mentions in our discussion, the big capital-intensive projects to finance solar parks, wind farms, and smart grids will most likely be met by some combination of public-private financing. But now consider the tens of thousands of early-stage ventures that solve one problem or the other across the sustainability value chain. They won't draw the attention of the big private equity firms or even the VCs. But this is happy hunting ground for investment angels. And now there's this. In the old days, seed investing was the domain of a few wealthy individuals with good connections. That won't change, but thanks to a new breed of matchmaking platforms, almost anyone with the passion, the patience, and an appetite for risk can flip through the deals digitally, then lay down a few thousand dollars. Still, Mark says, closed or limited groups of curated and specialized investors can prove a better option. It offers collective expertise, some screening and vetting rules, and if well-designed, an avenue to viable early-stage investments. Is this the dawning of early-stage investing in sustainability? It might be too early, but tell that to the angels. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. Please share this podcast and others with friends and colleagues. We have over 180 episodes available on our website or wherever you search for and listen to your podcasts. All you need do is subscribe, and each week you'll be alerted to a new installment, highlighting a topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guide Asia's future. We've re-released our website as well. Each episode is now accompanied by our weekly newsletter. You can read it online or subscribe and receive it by email. Our episode archive is entirely searchable, and whether you're interested in corporate purpose, future tech, future economy, or geopolitics at large, we have something for you. Please do check it out at www.insideasiapodcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening.